Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas. Every Monday, I feature the songs and stories of grassroots musicians. Regular listeners might note that today I'm changing up the regular intro music here because uh, I wanted to squeeze in one more song from today's guest, Justin Curry. Justin has been playing violin since he was 16 and already performed all over the U.S. and internationally, quite a bit in Japan. We talk about how he started playing following a severe injury and content warning. If you can't handle graphic descriptions of kneecaps going where they shouldn't, be sure to skip the 13 to 14 minute mark. Uh, Then we get into much more pleasant stuff like how he taught himself to play, the intractable problems of racism, and the rocky relationship behind one of his songs. Really uplifting stuff. Uh, Visit JustinCurryViolin.com for shows and more of his music. As always, thank you so much for listening, and now let's get on with the show. Well, I was always a very active child, but my first, I think, real experience was in both ballet and um, theater, to be honest. Trying to think back, how many, when did I do ballet? I was doing ballet since I was three years old. I did that for a few years. Surprisingly, for my my size, I'm actually quite agile, but (laughs) you'd be surprised. Uh, But yeah, for my youth, I did a lot of ballet. In this day and age, it's really hard to find, but it's, it's something that I really appreciated from my parents always try to make me learn everything regarding culture either be in my studies, my music, uh, just everyday life. They pushed me to study abroad when I first went to years when I was a kid. Um, They pushed me to... take theater up when I was younger to, uh, you know, to, to broaden my horizons. Um, they're also the force. I was uh, student council president for all the years I was in high school. I graduated a year early, so it was three out of four years. Um, and they really pushed me to, uh, in a good way. And I mean, some people are yeah. like, oh, they forced you. No, no, they were always positive affirmation to get me to try everything regarding culture and the advancement of, you know, modern society, just to make yourself into a well-rounded uh, and balanced individual, and I, I have always appreciated that. What is their uh, background um, that instilled that made them want to instill this in in you? Well, I had a very musical family. Uh, my aunt used to be a professional singer for many years. She actually worked in uh, Cleveland uh, after she moved out from New York um, when there used to be a very uh, large jazz scene, uh, scene out here. It's not as big as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember the days where almost every place out here, every major restaurant had a jazz night and they had musicians come from all over the world just out here. And you, you don't see that anymore. It's kind of sad. But um, it, it used to be such a vibrant jazz community and she did that for quite a few years. Uh, my mother used to always sing uh, once in a while. She was pretty good. Uh, my father was a uh, jazz uh, drummer, professional for many years. Um, And along with that, I've had cousins who have such a large family. I have like 150, 200 cousins I know out of my family, quite literally. Um, And a lot of them are musicians. My uh, my, uh, uncle from my my grandfather's side, yes, he's a professional uh, saxophonist. I don't know. Just, I have always had a musical and very artsy family. But oddly enough, I didn't really start looking at music as my first way of a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I originally was going to be an engineer, either nuclear or aeronautical. Um, I actually, that and I had uh, some scholarship money for studying. Uh, was it the math that clicked for you a lot in terms of that? Math, science, mm-hmm. mechanicals. Um, I, I've always had an interesting just... I don't know. I've been enthralled by machines. Um, I mean, even even now, I still collect old vehicles just because I like to tinker with them. My, my daily car is an old, uh, like a, a 70s uh, BMW, uh, and I drive that daily. Um, but it, it's like that. I like if something goes wrong, I, I know I can fix it. Um, I've always had that nice inclination that machines are such a... It's an art form in itself, the ability to make something not only look aesthetically pleasing, especially when it's something like a vehicle or an aircraft, but to carry out a functionality that, you know, that works. There's an art form to that. And I think that's something that 
uh, as much as I love the arts, it, it's kind of underappreciated how much beauty actually goes into everyday objects that we use. Um, everything is supposed to have some sort of aesthetic to it. I just randomly, I can't, I can't for the life of me remember where I saw it recently. It was like, like maybe I was out at a bar or, and there was just this video playing about how awesome gears are. They are? Oh, no, it was on Facebook. Nick Nick Delegati showed it. Ah, oh, Nick, it, yes. And, and it, it, it was this old 50s video that explained transmissions. And and it started out with like this balancing fulcrum and then showed like, yes. oh, if you put a 10-pound weight and a 5-pound weight here and the fulcrum's here. And then it kept evolving into like, and then there are these gears, which can do this. And oblong gears and bevel gears. And, all, and I was like, oh, yes. fucking yeah, gears. <laughs> It's <laughs> right. It's actually quite. It's a very interesting subject. Uh, I think that's for a rear. Uh, what was it for the rear end? It was for the. Um, it was for the rear transmission and distribution gear. That's interesting enough. I, I've worked on those before. They're, they're a pain to work on, but they're quite interesting. <laughs> uh, but yes. Yeah, so. Collaborate with like OK Go at some point, where you all play music and music. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's definitely a, from the very. You know, when I first started getting into like programming or something, and then I had a um, a boss or a coworker who played music, and they started talking about like, oh, the relationship between math and music. Oh, they're one and the same. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as a coder, it's like you know, like you create your loops. Mm-hmm. You just like, oh, I want this amount of code to execute, and like, there's a logic that you have to do with that. Well, there's studies about that that people that patterns that play music, you know, they they want to have a music program because it helps with so many different subjects at once. So you're learning how to you know, be creative and do math and it mixes it all together. And I say that, uh, that kids are better, they're better at some of the other subjects if they start off early with music. Yes, It unlocks pathways in your brain yes. for certain. I mean, your brain's a muscle and if you, you know, it, and that just strengthens mm-hmm. a lot of different, uh, it, it's core, I would say. Mm-hmm. Your brain's core. Yes. And what's interesting enough is that we all live in a world of math. Every every little thing can be mathematically calculated algorithms for everything from thought patterns to uh, how machines work to, to even just sound waves. Uh, this whole world is just a instance of waves put together. It's interesting when you go to quantum mechanics. Um, it's been years since I, taught, I talked about this. Actually, one of the things I always thought about before I, uh, when I was thinking about engineering, um, I thought about going to theoretics. And there's a lot of stuff I had to check about that how the understanding of how our universe to the very core is weaved together. And if we really look at it, it's only just a bunch of waves, and everything can be mathematically proven on a you know put a paper if you really want to take the time to write it all out. Um, but music, it feels is like the one language that we humans were able to a, a universal form of that mathematical code that no matter where you are, you can understand it. It's, it's one of the most universal things in the world. And I, I'm just, it, it, it's odd enough when I thought when I first started, I thought it was odd. Oh, I want to do music now. This is, this is going to be quite odd. But when I think about it, no, it's just turning that one thing from one subject on understanding the mechanics of machines to the mechanics of what the workings of one's heart and one's soul. Thank you. 
So when did that pivot happen for you? At what age did you first pick up an instrument? And your primary instrument now is violin. Yes. Has, is that where you started? No, I was actually a trombonist for many years um, during um, schooling. I was a terrible trombonist, always last chair. Um, and my teacher said I have absolutely no musical talent, and you should you should you should go and uh, uh, learn economics or politics. That's go that's going in the biopic. Oh yes, <laughs> you have that scene. In the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one had no fa- no one had faith in me that I was musically uh, gifted. Um, interesting enough, I, I surprised my, even myself. It was just the wrong instrument, yeah. I suppose. Uh, everyone has a gift, and for me, it was always string instruments. Um, so, who? How did you come mo- make that uh, uh, migration? There's actually a funny story behind that. Um, it was actually completely by accident. Um, it actually had to do with said band uh, practice. Um, there was a time, if anyone has ever been in marching band before, once in a while you do a, something called a band dance, which is something when you're on a marching field and you don't swagger your instruments around. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, um, being in the Ohio we are, um, football is some sacred religion, as everyone knows out here. Uh, for good or just worse. here though in the rest of America it's yeah. not so much but in Ohio it's for very... my, my audience outside of Ohio there's a thing football here yes. is big so the thing is really uh, let the um... <laughs> that's why we're in <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh Ohio sports burning wreck but that's alright <laughs> yeah. um, so you're doing your band dance we're doing our band dance and uh, since all is holy and uh, we heathens are not allowed to touch the field unless it's a game, since we're not football players, um, we had to practice in a parking lot. Now, this isn't like a nice swept clean. This is one with divots, broken glass, you know, pretty much everything rocks. So we're doing a kicking our instruments and we're all doing it. So I'm, we're kicking and I slip on my right leg. And I come hard on it. Now, my kneecap, my family has weak knees. It's something that's, you know, it's genetic in our family. Um, Well, my full weight went on there, and I hyperextended my knee about 45 to 60 degrees up the wrong way. And since I was on it, it also twisted about 30 degrees the other way. So when I tried to pull my, my leg was completely disconnected from my kneecap for a few seconds. So I tried to pull it in because, you know, you're panicking. And when I, uh, since it twisted, I didn't notice at the time, but all of the ligaments to the left side of my kneecap were torn. So when I tried to pull my knee to my leg back together, my kneecap popped out and ended up on the other side of my leg, tearing up my entire internals. Oh, and I'm going to have to put some kind of warning before this story starts. Yes. To dub in and be like, if y'all can't hear vivid descriptions of a kneecap going where it doesn't belong, <laughs> maybe hit that 30-second skip thing. Yes, probably for the best from this situation. Um, I'm still missing about a nickel-sized piece of my right kneecap. Ooh. They said it was a miracle that I can even walk. But a year of, the- of therapy and... Uh, uh, not giving up. Um, if you can see now, I don't even have to wear a brace anymore. So hey. the fact that I was actually able to do that, though there's still cartilage here going around loose, but Hey, I'm doing pretty, I'm doing pretty well. Um, but pretty much, um, that ended my uh, marching band career for quite a bit of time. And actually I never really marched on the field again because of that. However, um, you know, in pretty much how long was I out of school? I was out of school for a couple of weeks. I could barely move, and just the surgery was a mess. I'm not going to go into the full detail. It's pretty bad. But, um, but in, uh, save that for when I I do my medical procedure memories (laughs) podcast (laughs) that will have like negative two subscribers. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, uh, pretty much, I was my entire leg was a mess, so I had to take off school. And there's not much you can do as a 15 year old without really doing anything. Um, I mean, I could play video games all day. That's what most people did my age. But um, you know, as much as I love video games, I'm the type of person that unless the story is very compelling, I get not bored. But it, it's like it, it's like a choose your own adventure book. No matter what you choose, your path is usually already defined, unless it's open, free, open world. But even that has some linear aspects. So it's like I want to do something different with my spare time since I'm going to be off for a while, and they're pretty much sending me books and homeworks, and you know, so I can do that at home and then turn that. But how am I going to you know, spend my time? So um, 
I figured, you know what, I've always wanted to uh, learn violin, even though my teachers have absolutely no musical talent. Why not? This would be a nice hobby. It's a great sitting instrument. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I started, and I made, as one violin owner of a shop, this is, uh, what's the... Peter Zaretz and Sons Violins in Mayfield. Um, I stared. I uh, went up to them about six, five, four or five months after I started playing, and they were. What's the best way to describe it? They were impressed enough for to let me play a ten million dollar violin in their office. Wow! One of their Stradivarius. Wow! After five months. And how did you go about? learning it did you have someone come in to teach you or you're you just at, i'm just holding it and i'm just gonna find what you can do with it you're looking at your teacher here of course i listened to tapes for you i was always a fan of classical music um and i listened to tapes for years and i looked on youtube for lessons and stuff and one of my teachers were incredible like how in two days are you able to get vibrato done i'm like well see what you see feel what you feel and mimicry oh yeah mimicry and it turned into which that. is how human beings learn exactly and honestly, I mean, it's like, it's how I learned coding uh, is like, you know, I looked at someone's source, deconstructed it and I just would, okay, that's, how I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a totally different skill, but I mean, it's, it's what I see all the time. It's like from a lot of people and like, especially raising kids, it's like, well, that's, that's the trouble of being a parent too, is like, they learn what they see. Exactly. And what they see is what they be, and what they see is what they become. I have a, I have a side question. Why would a. Why would a violin cost ten million dollars? <laughs> what? What about it? Like what? Three hundred fifty-year-old violin. Oh, I was gonna say, is it vintage? Like old? Made by an Italian master, Antonio Stradivarius made some of the best instruments known to mankind. His, uh, it's like touching the face of God if you're a violinist. Very high quality. You know, one of my I, I have a few I have a quite a collection of violins, twenty five instruments, uh, violins in my uh, collection, um, and one of them uh, was given to me by a very uh, I'm not going to say his name. He's uh, unfortunately have already passed away. Uh, a very very what's a good way to say a very well endowed uh, patron of mine who gave me one of his instruments before he passed. Um, now we don't know exactly who made it, but we're able to. But he knows exactly by the design and the wood uh, wood samples, the years it was made. Um, it's approximately a 1650 instrument. Um, it's actually red, oddly enough. And there's an interesting story behind that one. Um, it was said that it was um, made by uh, with the blood of um, what is it? Uh, Protestant uh, heretics when they were about to be burned on the stake, uh, and they used the blood to make the. Uh, I think there's an old legend about that instrument. Now, I, I am curious, is that, like, they used the blood because, like, ha, fuck you, Protestants, or to remember, like, oh, the sacrifice of the Protestants who were burned. <laughs> no, it was mostly, like, ha, burn in hell, you heathens. Okay, yeah, I was like, um, it's, like, it's probably one is, or the other. <laughs> this, is, this is Italy, very Catholic Okay, yeah, time, yeah. Very Catholic at the time. So Protestants were heretics, and during the Reformation, many people were uh, burned and slaughtered, and it was, I think, kept for a very long time. Sort by, of like a vicious trophy. Exactly. Or Put put the, put exactly. the blood in the paint. That we can even stain. make. We can use even your your blood is your one thing. Your Protestant it's, it, that saying was the one thing dirty Protestant blood is used for is at least to decorate our uh, trinkets, and that's the kind of thing that they had back in the day. Um, my my current views do not represent that, but welcome to. Uh, st- 1600. There's some cold ass history for you, Deb. Before she's going to Italy at the end of the month. Beautiful country. I have a uh, good friend of mine, uh, who distant uh, relative. Uh, I should get him in touch. He works in the Vatican. Got to uh, rewind a little bit because we kind of went from your recovering and playing uh, violin, and then how do you how does you you start progressing to writing like developing your songs and getting out to a point where like you're touring and well that happened fairly it's almost a blur how quickly that happened um you know sometimes in life things happen and everything aligns as you know perfectly for an opportunity to arise now now if we go back to after i was playing that that uh, that 10 million dollar violin at that place it's like wow 
this might be something interesting. I never thought fully as a career because I thought, oh, I could be a musician on one end and then, you know, maybe once it's still, you know, play out once in a while. But I was still looking at that time to mostly be an engineer at that point or uh, something with uh, science or mechanics or something. Um, but pretty much I practiced and practiced. Um, I even got my uh, music teacher that said... Um, um, who originally said I had no uh, talent in music interested. And they're like, why are you uh, always practicing? You see, if you put the same amount of work as you did on your violin and trombone, you would be the best trombonist here. But I, I was never a good trombonist. It's something I never really wanted to do. Well, not that I didn't want to do, but it just wasn't there's the right. There's different instruments. Exactly. Like musical ability, I mean, it's, there's a physical part to it, too. And if it's not your instrument, well, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to really, I feel like with any of the brass instruments, just what you have to, you know, I played trumpet for a hot minute when I was a kid. But mm -hmm. I, what I remember of it is like, it's, yeah, like the what you have to deal with with your lips and the pressure and then the, just dealing with that exactly. instrument. It's a very different thing than I imagine. A violin is just kind of more elegant and flowing. And yes. when I just feel the physicality of it. It's like, yeah, you got to be kind of committed more to the sound of brass to deal with what that is. It de really depends. I think it was easier to get good sound production out of my trombone than the violin. Oh, really? Yes, because the bow is where all the... All, everyone says, oh, it's the left hand where all the bows... Mm -hmm. No, the magic happens all on the bow. That's a separate instrument in itself. But the trombone did teach me one thing. It gave me a very good ear because a trombone, unlike anything, doesn't have a valve. So you have to match it up where you feel it's it. It's like being, it's like, yeah, because it's a equivalent to a guitar uh, or guitar. You have frets and you don't mm -hmm. have that. It's one thing I always find intimidating about bass and cello and all those instruments. It's like, how do you know where to go without I'm the frets? I'm a clarinet player, so I'm, you know, mm -hmm. you go like this, it's an E, you know, like, and, and that's it. And then I never, I never quite understood how people just, you just know, like you yep. just get it and you know, and you know, you don't. I actually, I never practiced with finger tapes. I told myself from the beginning, I will not use finger tapes because if I, because it gets you used to looking oh, yes. at it, it teaches you a wrong skill. You should be learning your, 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 uh, your, ear. your ear and how you feel. Mm -hmm. And if you, as long as you know how to, you can feel where the instrument is and you know where it is. Um, even in like I'm in with a band with my electric, sometimes if I don't have like an earpiece with me or something and I don't know what's going on, you, you can't hear over the band, you know where you're still going, you'll still be in pitch. Um, but you have to feel it and you have to understand, you have to use both ear and sight. Uh, very little looking. People wonder, it's like I never, I usually play with Your my ear eyes and close. touch. Yep. Ear and touch are the two things you need for, uh, for the violin, um, at least for intonation. Now, to play a proper violin and get that beautiful sound, unlike other instruments, we have to concentrate on you know this thing, right? If you concentrate while playing the violin, you're not going to get it right. You have to let it go. It's a zen-like experience. You have to remove your will to control every little thing. Violin is very much a practice of letting go of your well, everything that's not necessary there in the moment. And once you get that down, you can play anything. But you have to be able to put yourself in that wonderful zone where you have absolutely no... What's a good way to say it? Absolutely no comprehension of anything else besides the here and now. And yet, while you're playing, you're in the here and now. You must also remove yourself from the here and now.
very interesting, especially nowadays when you see uh, a lot of the problems. I don't want to go into political tangent. People having so many problems with this nowadays, and it's I don't like, believe in political tangents. There's, politics is just always there, whether you're no, talking about no, it or not. It's a political stance to not talk about politics, in my opinion. That's a good way to put it. But how we look at people nowadays, it's my family was, you know, for me, I don't understand it. It's just for the fact that as someone who is from all of the above, and if you look at my family, you, you'll see that we come in all shapes, colors, and sizes. I mean, I just happen to be the very white pasty one with the curly hair, but my sister has darker skin. It was like, we never had a problem with that. It's always like everyone's a person, but it's weird in Ohio because when you come out here, there's a very big divide. When it comes to that, like even in the music scene or everything like that, it's like people on one side won't come to the other side. It's really rare where I see people intermixing. And I always found that very odd because my entire family is based on that. I mean, I lived in Japan for years. My ex-wife was Japanese and I'd never seen a problem with that. Um, same thing I see with sexism because my father was really never in my life. It was always my mother and my aunt because it was always strong women in my life. Mm -hmm. So when I came out of school and people say, Wait, people actually think women are less than men? What? But the problem I see with the current situation is people, like I said before, people confuse the idea of where you're from to just the idea and color of your skin. Yes. And that's something I have. There's a dissonance I see that because, to be completely honest, if you look at my eye burn, I like everyone else, but I have to But my sister, she tans. It's, it's like that. All my family... Race and color is a very, very bad. Dis it's a very bad way to base your allegiance Not really on something. Corollary. Uh, yes, because I have my cousin now. She is half African, um, but she was born with blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, very, very, very pale, and you wouldn't be able to tell unless you, you know, you asked her. And it's it it's like this. Genetics are a very interesting thing, and many people, if you try to base on what you look like to where you're from or what you side on, it's a very, very inaccurate way of telling. Just be happy you're existing in life, to be honest. Uh, love the people around you and don't get caught up in so many ideas about this has to be this way and this has to be that way. Society is always intermingled, and I think that the only way people are going to get past this and understand that this is an inevitability. The world has gotten bigger. It's been doing this for thousands of years. Now it's just so easy. You can just call someone across the world. I call someone, but there's always been people from other countries going to other places. I mean, my family's been at this for many, many generations. My entire family is a product of traders and, you know, it, 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 it turns into that. So this, well, the, pro well, the problem is that right now, like the specifically like the, I don't think the Dayton shooter had any manifesto, but the one that came out from the El Paso is, is a regurgitation of other things. And it has in it that language of like invasion. Exactly. And we're being replaced. And, and the thing that you and I are saying, like when I look and be like, Oh good. Like everyone's, you know, it's not a strange thing for, uh, people from different countries or different skin colors exactly. or all these these artificial constructs to like get together and mix and it brings us all closer together and we are one humanity. These people see that and see a threat for some reason. Because it's weird. People look at me like, oh, with the current situation, people you know might look at you differently. But it comes from both sides of the family, both from uh, my from people of you know who are white and of people of color. Um, I'm looked at weird at that side too because to them. I'm white uh, or not black enough. And that's one thing you don't see in other countries. It's that weird things, especially in the middle. It's not like that in the coast. Like I, I've been, I spent a lot of time in New York, a lot of time in LA, a lot of time like that. But especially out here in the South, it's like you have to choose one side or the other. And if you're like my family, which is everything and above, and you can tell when you see my family are a hodgepodge. They'll divide you from one side lighter people on one side and the darker people when you have to choose a side on that. And I've never understood that in the United States. That's something I think is very unique. Well, not 100% unique to the United States, but it has it has deeper it has a deeper talent here than anywhere else. And I don't know how we're going to get past that. Well, it's easy to get past that. Just understand that people are people. But 
it's still that ideology like if you're one thing you have to be this or one thing you have to be it goes back to my feeling like well if you should not base on your ideology on the color of your skin and that comes from both sides well to some degree i mean what we're i mean we're dealing with in a lot of ways we have so many things that make the human brain the reason we're such a dominant species is, you know, our ability for pattern recognition mm-hmm. or the fact that we are able to create tribes yes. and that we care for, you know, we create communities. That is something that made us a successful species. But now as we have grown to scale, yes, there are problems with these things in our brain where people classify the way they classify things and, yes. and define who's in my tribe. That's exactly. who I care about and who's out of my tribe and how are they threatening my tribe? Exactly. And they're all artificial constructs. And now we have to evolve to see us ourselves as a tribe, yes. as one tribe. And that's slowly changing because color was usually traditionally as a way to distinguish yourself. But as the world is changing, ideology in other countries have replaced that. America still has that issue when it comes to skin color or uh, racial origin. I mean, there's problems in every country. There's always going to be someone like that. But the problem with America, it's so deeply ingrained in our psyche. Many people don't realize it until after they really, really think about it. And that that will change. Time will always change. And that's one thing. um, I was raised in a small town, Madison, Ohio. That's my hometown. And when I'm not traveling, I usually go back to see my family. Um, but the thing is, when I was a kid, I was considered the outsider or, as some people did, that black kid. And it's always odd because to anyone when I visited my family out here in Cleveland, because I actually had family that lived right down the street, actually, here for years, right down Cedar, where that, that big shopping center is right down there, um, across with oh, the Burger yeah, King. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't there when I was a kid. That was all just little stores. I remember that it's when I was going away soon, hopefully, too. But um, when, I, uh, when I lived there, when they looked at me, they're like, oh, it's uh, the, they always doing, well, it's the, it's the white part of our family. And it, it's like that weird, again, like, you know, it's another tangent, it's that weird ideology that people have to over here that thing that if you are this, if you are some feature of that you're automatically on one side or the other and like i said it's it, it's a problem that's even beyond just because oh people some say well it's just white people or it's like no no it, everyone we have that so ingrained in our society so ingrained for years that people automatically assume that based on your features. And then it's the other thing, it's weird because when I go in some places, they think I'm Jewish, which actually I am Jewish, but I, I was, I was well, because st- you are. Yes. Yes. But, um, I, I'm not, not practicing, not practicing, mm-hmm. but I have it in my family. So I remember when I was going to, uh, about a year ago, I was stopping in DC and I stopped by and someone's talking to me in uh, Yiddish. I know a little bit and I'm like, um, uh, hello. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Jewish. I'm like, well, I am, but I'm, I'm practicing. We had like, a little conversation about that. Uh, a fun little guy, fun guy. He's uh, he was actually coming from Israel to visit some fa- uh, family out there who worked in the embassy. But um, it's just interesting because people really don't know who. <laughs> Again, this is just another tangent, but it's like depending on where I go and what time of day I'm at, people are one thing or another, and I'm mm-hmm. like, that's why I like to say I'm yes. That's just yes. <laughs> and as long as you get the... I'm the, just Justin. Exactly. And that's why I say, I'm a Justin. What? I'm a Justin. You're, that's your name. Exactly. <laughs> but you are the Justin Curry. Yes. What people don't understand is that no matter where you're from, people pretty much the same. Yet we have different cultural ways of expressing ourselves, but the same mechanicals and facilities of how we experience that are very very similar i have lived abroad in many countries in many years music is a universal language and most places i've been very very open with very open arms very very few places where i've had uh more hostile people but that's mostly like uh it's not even that once in a while we go to a country bar in the middle of nowhere and there's one heckler but that's usually just the, the town drunk um but when I come in, and that's actually most of the time that happened happened to the United States and, oh, oddly enough, Ohio. <laughs> uh, it's something about the Midwest. But oddly enough, when it comes to the rest of the world, people 
I don't know what's the best way to describe it. Music, like I said, it's an international language that everyone can understand. People react to music, what they like and how they like it, very similar. Of course, um, depending on where you are, some people will clap and some people do, but that you can find different crowds depending on what even in, where you are. Just see, if I'm cleaving, depending on what venue I'm doing, you can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, when it comes to that music, it, it's... It's very true when the people say it's a universal language. You see that wonderment, that excitement, that uh, joy in their face. That that you know when you see someone who really enjoys a piece of music. And no matter where you go, that's the same. It's absolute pure bliss beyond any other feeling in the world. And I must admit, I am happiest when I am either playing violin or I also get that feeling when I'm driving a car or something like that. It's, it's like that when you're in that zone and you're just there, but you know you're, you're not there, but you are. It's, it's an odd feeling. But once you get there, and I think that's one of the reasons I was able to get well, make progress at such an immense speed because I understood that when I was young. You have to put yourself in a different state of mind to 
play the violin, many other things to be truly good at. You have to be beyond yourself and don't think about, don't think of your limitations. So you training yourself, yes. um, if you had had a, a teacher, they might've brought you in like, okay, you're going to learn. I don't know what, you know, like what I know, you know, if you're a piano teacher, there's, mm -hmm. there's a standard kind of entry, like you play this and this, mm -hmm. and then there's like, oh, you're going to practice these classics and this and that. Mm. So you teaching yourself, you have a, a extremely eclectic style. It seems oh, from, nice. from like the type of things you can play and are all over the place that oh. do you think that that was freed you from being like trapped in any sort of genre to begin with and that yes. you just jumped in like this sounds good i'm just playing in this and i'm playing in that and putting all the things together and not having to start from being limited by a baroque violin or jazz or whatever the different styles of teaching might be i made sure i had a wide difference but at the same time i also i mean a different variety i mean a wide variety but at the same time I made sure that I didn't just, you know, try to tread around more difficult pieces. Like when I was younger, I did learn all 24 Paganini's Caprices. It's been a while since I played them in public, but I can do them. But it, it's pretty much, I, I forced myself to learn that. But not like, oh, we have to, but I made myself look over the classics. I made my look at Bazzini. I looked, made myself look at Tarantini. I made myself look at Mozart. I made myself look at Paganini. And I made sure even at the time when i couldn't do it all the way i made sure i learned it slowly and slowly and practice slowly that's number one take it nice easy relaxing because no matter how much you try to force yourself it's just an just a um a, it is a um what's the best way to say it is an act of frustration you must do things slowly deliberately with care with understanding and at the same time freely and with grace and with understanding that you won't learn everything all at once and once you understand that that you're not a machine and you can't just acquire knowledge like that it gets a lot easier and that's one reason I was able to learn so many pieces I have a repertoire that's over 3,000 pieces um, that I can act actively remember. And if you put a piece of music in front of me, I can freestyle with almost anything. I can play in any uh, key. And I made, that's one thing I liked about teaching myself because a lot of musicians, especially violinists, if you do the all classical path, you are never taught how to be outside of the music. And that's one thing I always made sure I could do, something I could evenly just, even some days I would practice the entire day not even looking at a piece of music. I would just find music I liked and played along with it. So did you have anyone that you'd consider a, a mentor or a guide as you were going into this, though? Um, from a listening standpoint, Isaac Perlman, uh, Joshua Bell, um, Buckethead, the guitarist. Anyone know Buckethead? Yes, I'd love Buckethead. You find the most joyous of melodies and the most powerful riffs from him. And I'll, even if you're a violinist, if you're listening to this, listen to him. He'll... he'll show you a few ways i mean just just a lot of different musicians but i think my favorite of all is probably isaac per perlman violinist wise um he's he's a joyous person in life and his music and he's one of the last great violinists i think that is of the old classical school because old classical is a lot different than modern classical everyone looks at classical as upright uptight do exactly what the piece of music says but that wasn't 30 40 years ago during the heyday even if you were a soloist you were able to do what you wanted and add a little bit of your own flair to it and Eric Perlman added his flair to everything and he's just such a jovial, free-spirited person he's like the Yo-Yo Ma of the violinist he's all Yo-Yo Ma's also a very important uh, you know He's very important to me. But Isaac Perlman just added... He has that old-school flair, but he's very humble and very understanding of the music because if you ever took a master class with him, he'll go with different styles, and most people are like, How, why are you doing that? It's destroying things. No, it's not. It's showing that there's many different emotions. They can go through just a single piece of paper, even just in the tonality in the mood. Um, and just because of that, he he's just always been like... 
even in today's society where everyone's supposed to, especially music, is supposed to be as it was written, and that can be a lot of a society as today, as many people say that everything's supposed to be, oh, we're free spirit. We're not, no, no, no. More people look at the internet and they see what they don't want. They want to become that. And it just becomes how to do this. It's, it's like my generation. Uh, I mean, I'm 26 now. Uh, I feel that much older than that. <laughs> but um, it's like everyone wants to be an Instagram influencer. Everyone wants to be a YouTube star. And they always do the same thing as the person behind them. It just cookie cutter whatnot just for likes and it's like do your own thing don't use those things like oh i'm a uh what's what's the most and what do they have an influencer an influencer oh i hate that phrase to the highest point because i'm a brand ambassador exactly it's like it's just for likes and i mean sure you're good at marketing and there's 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 some skills to learn from that, but at the same time, it's like there's going to be a time where if you do the same thing, everyone's eventually going to slowly drop off, and people are freaking out now because a lot of other it's not as powerful as it was even a year ago, uh, that that term. And I want that term. I I'm I'm making a podcast. I'm putting out a perspective. I'm an influencer. Like if you listen to my show, I'm going to make. I'm going to influence. You're going to check out musicians you might not have oh, checked yes, out. You're yes. going to hear about uh, political issues you might not have been aware. I hello. I'm an influencer. Where's my check? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take me through anything, um, some of the tracks that you've you've sent to uh, If there's any of those that you want to take me through, what what you're communicating with the song. You're actually, I think, also the first instrumentalist I've had on the show, and it's it's a very different thing to kind of look at that and consider, like, oh, what kind of questions do you yes, ask a musician in yes. this space versus when I'm dealing with singer songwriters and you're getting into because the questions I'll ask them is like, oh, when where do your lyrics come from? Is it do you, mm -hmm. is there an emotional space that you find will prompt you to start writing more than others? And well, let's go with "Love Under the Star Speckled Sky." That was an interesting piece for me to write. Now, music, especially instrumentalists, uh, unlike those with lyrics, many people have to go what's based on the title. And that's it. And the rest of the emotion only comes from notation. So it's something that the listener can create their own. That's the beauty of instrumental music. There's no set story. The person who listens to it can feel it 
but your, your, your title does have more weight then because you're you can be setting a mental context exactly. for someone. It's just, but it's a, but it's a broad context because yeah. people don't know the exact story behind it. Now the story, oh, it's kind of a sad story behind that one. Now, people always ask me all this, Justin, why don't you date someone or why do you never see? Well, there's only a few times in my life that I can ever say I was ever truly in love with someone. Now, there was a time when I was married. I was married for three years of my life. Um, I was from around 20 to 23 when I was married to someone in Japan. Now, I respect her as a very good person, but the problem is she had something called dissociative personality disorder. Now, to keep yourself stable when you have something like that, you need to take medication. It's pretty much a bipolar, but to turned up to 11. And when she was on her medication, she was a wonderful, very intelligent, smart and just witty person, the best person you could be around. Literally the best partner I could have ever done. But she had a manic episode, and she stopped taking her medication, and they tried to change her medication, but she kept stopping it. And what happens is when you take someone off their medication that they need to keep them mentally stable, a lot of bad things happen. Um, she would get very, very violent with me. Um, a few times she would even brandish a knife at me just because she thought I was out too late. It was, it was a, I still respect her as much as a person because I know deep down inside she's still a very good person, but I knew that if I stayed in that relationship, um, she was like physically, mentally abusive at times and without, without her taking her medication, it was just a bad situation to be in. So between then, I really didn't really date anyone. Um, so that kind of took out my idea of, you know, love stuff. Because that, that really hurts. When you think you found someone, you go all the way around the world, that you know, it hurts. It was the hardest decision I ever had to make in my life to finally say, I can't do this anymore. And uh, so go back go after two years, 25 years old. And, you know, there's a few people I was interested in, but I never really took out. Um, just very, not that I'm, not that I don't dislike, and there's a few people that I've always had a crush on, or a few people I've had a crush on, but a combination of my hesitation to go in another situation where I'm not sure if I'm ready yet, and hesitation because I don't want to get hurt again after that, because that, I've seen a lot of terrible things. When I was a kid, a lot of death from my family, a lot of sad things, but at everything that was... That was... It it devastates you in different way or someone that that's important to you, someone that you wanted to build a life with. And so I found someone that I thought, and this happened last year, that I had a really big crush on. Um, but in short, she... She was a good person, but she was also kind of manipulative. And, you know, those red flags that just look like flags, flags until you really snap out of that rose-colored thing. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about rose-colored glasses is you can't see the red flags. Yes. That's a very, that's a very true thing. She, um, yeah, she ended up kind of stalking me. Just weird. Long story short, it's like, no, I can't. You're too mental. She is a person that was very, 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 very witty, very smart like my ex, but at the same time, she she had a lot of baggage as well. She was too fixated. Yeah, she was too fixated. I, ha I had that. I mean, there, I gained so much clarity from my divorce, just yes. about what a relationship is, it, going through a painful... Like, exactly. I had to... I was like, I have to define this, and what a relationship finally was defined. It's like, it's emotional responsibility. You exactly. find someone like, I'm... Your happiness is my responsibility. And it's... When you have someone who has... You know, mental, uh, you know, problems where they they're not taking care of themselves to that point. Yes. You couldn't be emotionally responsible for someone like yes. that. That's without putting yourself in, in danger. danger. Yeah, and even when that, my her family was like, "Have you fixed her?" Yes, yeah, I, like, I can't fix someone. I tried my best to help someone, but you can't be saying that this is my. I can't. You can't change a person, and I'm okay with that. And now I understand that because I was young at that. I was 20 years old. She was eight years older than me. And the family put a huge responsibility on me. Like, you have to, can you do this? Can you do that? And I'm like, I'm just a person, not a miracle worker. 
Um, and I, again, I have no regrets over that because it taught me a lot about love and mostly a lot about myself and what I truly want out of my life. And that's why, you know, I'm the type of person that when I find someone, I'm very dedicated because um, I'm one of those weird type of people that it takes an awful lot for me to, I'm not, not just, I mean, I'm friends with a lot of people, acquaintances with everyone, but to love someone, it takes a lot. It's, I'm very, very picky. And my family say I'm sometimes I'm too picky, but, but there's nothing wrong with that. Cause at least you know what you're after, uh, what type of relationship you're looking for. But, um, that, that song was pretty much just a relief after years of, you know, me being very, very apprehensive about even the notion of love at times. And I was always, ooh, I mean, I, I remember honestly, if someone um, said they had a crush on me once, I was uh, going from a uh, open mic and I literally had a panic attack in a car because like, oh, I don't know what to do. This was after my, my divorce. Oh. Uh, really, I, uh, I'm, that was like not too long after my divorce. I'm just, I'm just bad at it. Uh, well, I'm not bad at it, but I'm just very nervous when it comes to that stuff now. Um, not as bad as I, I once was, but I still have that apprehension. Uh, and of course, with time, that'll go away. That'll go away. But um, it just reminds me that that whole song was about finally feeling at ease after years and years of feeling that I do the right, not really regret, but was this the right action for me to take? Because every action has a reaction and consequences at it. But having someone else who really cared about me, who I was, and that I could feel was very, very loving and very understanding of who I was, who I am, um, was a relief. And that's the piece of it. But it ends, the one thing about the piece that it almost is a foreshadowing, if you, if you listen to it, it has this feeling of longingness to it, which I guess in the end which showed, well, it didn't really work out, but... It's that feeling of longing and wishing for something. But at the end, sometimes it doesn't materialize. And that's okay. That's life. Um, not everyone you're going to meet is going to be that person. Not every time you feel that feeling, it's going to be the one that you stick with. And I think that's a good thing, though. Because life, life is what you make out of it. It's an adventure. And sometimes you're going to really feel that deep connection with someone... And then it doesn't work out, but there's always going to be a tomorrow. And as long as you're still breathing, as long as you're still walking, you still have the world in your hands. And that's what I've always said, because I've been through really dark places in my life before. I've seen some really, really bad stuff when I was younger. But no matter, as long as you're still breathing at the end of the day, you still have a chance to make life whatever you want it to be. And I, I wanted this to, because I know there's probably someone out there that needs to hear this. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, life is can be difficult, and sometimes you can feel very lost, and you don't know where to go. But take a deep breath, breathe, center yourself. No matter where you are or who you are, you got this. Because life is what you make out of it. And it might sound like a huge responsibility now, but let that fill yourself with hope because that means no matter what direction you want, where you want to go, no matter what you've done or where you've been, you still have that ability to control it. You got this. <laughs>